Thank you, Gav. Hello, everybody. Merry Christmas Eve. It's a outstanding time of year, isn't it? It's so exciting, and it's wonderful to have you all here. Um, and I want to start by telling John that he was incredible, and I'm now feeling huge pressure because there's still children in the room. No one like evaporated them, uh, and I can't compete with, with that level of, of child interaction. Uh, I, have, I have some more stories to tell you, which I will try to do a good job of, but I want to just start by reassuring you, if you're not used to the church vibe that much, or if you're used to the sort of stereotypical church approach to Christmas, it goes something along the lines of, Christmas is not about getting presents. Please, everyone, just grow up and stop being so consumeristic and so hedonistic. Uh, this is serious stuff. Um, it's not about uh, getting, and then it's not really clear what it is about. It's probably supposed, it's something to do with putting Christ back into Christmas. Every church has said that at some point, right? And, um, and that it's got maybe something to do with praying a bit more and trying to eat healthy, or I don't know what. And uh, I just want to reassure you that if you're going to put Christ back into Christmas, the thing that needs to be removed is not the fun. So I'll make that absolutely explicitly clear. If Christ is going to be part of Christmas, if you're going to do Christmas and celebrating the way your joyful, extravagant God wants you to do it, it is absolutely about getting. It's not about giving. Stop being so grown up. It's about spine-tinglingly awesome joy. Uh, and so if you were wondering if you were doing enough of a spiritual job of Christmas, I would encourage you to party harder than you were planning to. When the people of Israel finally come back from exile and are rededicating the temple, we've said this year after year at this time, God says, go kill some extra beasts, have sweet meats, extra wine, like let's celebrate properly because today is a day that is holy to the Lord. You can go read about it in Numbers, the most serious sounding book in the Bible. If you're going to do celebration God style, drink a little bit more, eat a little bit more, celebrate a little bit more because the point of Christmas is to get, not to give. It's supposed to be ridiculously great. And so I would encourage you, if you've grown up too much, to regress a little bit and get a little bit frivolous and irresponsible and receive a gift this Christmas as opposed to trying to grow up and make it about some other highbrow kind of things. Okay, that's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing is that we do somehow have to figure out what it is specifically that God is wanting to talk to us about um, this year. And so I'm going to tell you two stories in a moment, but what these stories really are about is this incredibly fragile, massively important idea. Has anyone ever heard of the myth of Pandora's box? It's kind of old, it's a little out of vogue now, maybe the kids don't know it. I don't know it that well myself, but I think there's a person called Pandora, and I think he or she, it, slash, whatever, um, is too curious. So kids, there's a lesson in this, right? Don't be curious. Don't learn. Just obey what your elders tell you. Um, and, uh, and out of curiosity, she opens up some box that she's not supposed to, and all the terrible, evil things in the world escape, right? All kinds of nastiness, like greed and uh, fizzes and things like that, <laughs> escape into the world. And so you kind of know about this. All this terrible stuff comes out of the box and causes destruction and human suffering, and we start becoming nasty to one another. What you may not be familiar with is where the story ends, which is that there is a very small, very frail little thing that follows all the evil stuff out into the world. And it's called hope. And that's what I want to talk about this evening, that if we are going to find hope somewhere, it is fair and square in the middle of this story. There is hope elsewhere, I grant you. But this is the ultimate fountainhead of where you're going to find hope for life. And hope's important, isn't it? We need it. By definition, it's frail. By definition, it's not certain. If it was certainty, we wouldn't call it hope. It's a bit like trust, hey? If I say I have to trust you, I'm kind of implying I'm not 100% sure. That's why it's trust. 
If I have to have hope, it's like, well, the outcome's not certain. If it was certain, I wouldn't need a hope. As soon as you say you're going to hope about something, as soon as hope is required, you're kind of admitting it's a semi-hopeless situation. That's why you need hope. It's a sketchy situation. That's why you need hope. If it was easy, you wouldn't need hope. So it is by definition something frail, and yet it is incredibly powerful. Psychologists have actually studied hope, right? because some of you might be skeptical of it as an emotion. It's just a little bit flimsy. It's a little bit naive. No one wants to be the last person still believing in something when everyone else has stopped, right? No one wants to be the last kid still believing in a fairy tale, not to mention any specific ones, <clears throat> um, when everyone else has grown up and stopped believing that fairy tale. No one wants to be the person who still comes in fancy dress when everyone else has decided it's not a fancy dress event. No one wants to be the last person still forwarding that video on WhatsApp thinking it's cool when everyone else has already got it. I would suggest that you probably shouldn't forward it in the first place, but regardless of that, you don't want to be the last person naively hoping in something when everyone else has woken up and realized it was wishful thinking. And if you are going to hope in something or hope for something, and then you're disappointed, you know that hope is dangerous to have, can hurt you. It is probably safer to just lower your expectations and not to hope. And yet, psychologists have studied all the various vehicles that we operate in this world with. Because here's the big idea. You don't succeed in this world by being more talented than anyone else, or better looking, or having greater advantage. It's not even about skills. You succeed in this world if you're prepared to use the skills you have. This is what psychologists would call things like grit, or perseverance, or determination, or whatever, that you can bounce back, that you can keep using the skills you have. And so psychologists are interesting in, interested in what gets us to actually use the skills we have. Great ability, great talent, won't get you anywhere if you're not prepared to use that stuff. And they have discovered that more than having a positive self-image, more than having an internal locus of control, if you know what one of those are, and if you don't, it's something to do with remote control cars, more than having high emotional intelligence, more than even being bloody-mindedly optimistic, more than any of that stuff, the most potent psychological vehicle for actually getting the skills you have to turn your life into something successful is hope. Go and research it, check it out. Since the early 90s, psychologists have been going, this is the most powerful force inside the human psyche, is the ability to hope. We need hope. It's desperately fragile. It can be scary to have. And yet without it, we will struggle to do much. I'm going to not bore you with much more psychology, but I found this fascinating, that people who score low on hope scales, however you sort of measure how much hope you have, people who are low on hope, tend to take on one difficult thing at a time, focus on it alone, and they try to make sure that that thing is not that difficult, that they have a fairly good chance of mastering it. And if they can't master it, they give up on it. So that, for me, is touch rugby, right? Like, I had a go at it. I thought, I'm either going to be incredible or I'm going to give it up. And I gave it up. Um, whereas people who have huge amounts of hope in them, who are able to live in a hope-filled way, tend to take on, on average, six projects at the same time that are challenging, all of which have very high levels of difficulty, where there is no guarantee that they're going to master them, but they're prepared to learn and take the pain to keep trying. Other studies have shown that people who are suffering from terminal illnesses, but who score high on hope, report fewer negative emotions, less fear of death, are interestingly more realistic about their illness and in less denial. So these are not people floating on cloud, cuckoo land, hoping everything's going to be fine. People with more hope are actually more honest about what's wrong. And incredibly, 
heal faster, have better blood counts. All the best athletes in the world score high on hope. If you're low on hope, you won't be good at academics, you won't be good at athletics, you won't be good at getting better when you're sick, you won't be good at taking on difficult things. And finally, people who are good at hope are good at relationships. You know this, right? You don't like being around people who are bleak and despairing. And here's probably why you don't like being around them. They tend to be less grateful, interestingly. But people who are full of hope always tend to be more grateful and therefore more generous, even in suffering, even in difficult times. So we want this thing. We want to be people who have hope. We need hope desperately. It's good for us in all kinds of psychological reasons and physiological reasons and relational reasons. It can be scary to have because it can hurt you if the thing you're hoping for doesn't come through. So let's figure out how this story helps us because we're not talking about hoping in general. We're talking about the hope that we get from a specific story, the one that John just told. This idea that God exists. And not just that he exists, friends, but that he's for you. And not just that he's for you, but he came to get you. And he came to get you in the form of his son, and he suffered on your behalf, and saved you from the judgment that we deserved, and is coming to fix the world ultimately. That's the story. Is this the fairy tale that we shouldn't hope in? Or is this the kind of story that we really should hope in? Is this the WhatsApp video that's actually already been debunked, and it turns out that's fake news? Or is this real news? Because if this is real news, if this is true, then we absolutely can't afford to miss out. We absolutely can't afford to miss out. We need this to be true if it is. I'm so terrified by the idea that people in Bethlehem missed out. I hear that Disney on Ice is a thing, right? Is it a thing? Disney on Ice, they come here and, and Elsa and the other one, Anna, something, Anna, um, skate on the ice uh, and Papa, who else is there? I don't know. There are other people on the ice, and it's great. Now, if you had some random email, you know, beneath the one that says your Nigerian cousin has just died, leaving, you know, huge amounts of money, and if everyone would just stop shunning the poor, there's just a house in Nigeria just full of unclaimed money, and no one's answering the email. Anyway, if um, below that email, if you get another email saying, hey, we're from the Disney on Ice crew, and we just need a place to crash, a few of our extra sort of prima ballerina on ice people need a place to stay, um, and if you just laughed that off as a hoax, and it turned out that you could have had Anna and Elsa letting the storm rage on in your home, but you missed out, you'd be kicking yourself. And people in Bethlehem had the opportunity for this whole pageant to go down in their home, at their inn. But they didn't want to be the naive one who got caught out. They weren't full of hope enough to notice it, I guess. Ah, I got other stuff on. If this is true, we can't afford to miss out. If it's not true, then of course, you don't want to be the naive one clinging on to some false hope. But if this is true, we need this for meaning in our lives. Without a God, without a creator, I'm afraid your life lacks meaning, actually. Everything we're doing is fairly arbitrary. Not just if there's a God, your life means something in a grand story. You mean something to someone. That changes everything. We need him not just for meaning. We need him for morality. If there's no creator, there's no genuine right or wrong. It's just human opinion of what we like and don't like. And even more importantly than that, if the story is true, it gives us access to mercy to be known, to have a genuine right and wrong, and then to be helped where we fall short, to be made into the best version of ourselves even when we can't pull that off for ourselves. That's what the story promises. So let's have a look at part of it. I want to talk first about those kings, those wise men, right? 
They're cool. There were more than three of them, I, I must tell you. Uh, there were three gifts, but we don't know how many of them there were. And they lived somewhere in Persia, best guess. The Bible's not explicit about where they come from, but they live far off in the east. And somehow they get wind of what's going on, and they travel. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 2 for a little bit, then we'll talk about it, and then finish the story. After Jesus was born, Matthew 2, in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I don't know what that star is. Clearly not a normal one. Some other celestial thing went on that God got up to. You don't have to believe that Alpha Centauri actually started to move. God did whatever he did. But these guys who paid attention to the stars, who we know had far greater knowledge of the heavenly movements than we do today, figured out that something was up. And... And this is where the nerd in me gets excited. Because they're from Persia, right? Just stick with me on history for a while. Babylon in the kind of Persian area with the carpets. And Babylon is where the Jews 400 and something years before this had been in exile, where the prophet Daniel received prophecies t telling the world exactly how long it would be until the Messiah came. From the point when, David, when Daniel made his prophecies, and you can go and read this now, 490 odd years before Jesus came, he said there would be roughly 490 years until the Messiah came. 67 sets of seven or whatever it is, it adds up to 490 years, and then the Messiah will come. Jews go back to Israel, restart the kingdom, leaving lots of their ancient writings behind. We know that these major would have been fascinated by old texts and would have written, would have read up on all the things that cultures around them were interested in. That's what the Persians were famous for. So they would have come across this prophet, Daniel, who also, with incredible accuracy, predicted the rise and fall of Alexander the Great and various other things, and they'd have seen these prophecies coming true. Once again, you can go read this in your Bible right now, written before the stuff happened. And they would have added this up and gone, well, that's about now. 490 years has passed. This thing that this prophet was saying would happen is going to happen roughly now to the people that this message was sent to, the Jewish people. And then there's another classic character called Balaam, who's famous for having a donkey that he kept trying to kick, and then the donkey spoke to him because there were angels there. It's a cool story in the Bible that you should go and read. Balaam's not even a Jew. He doesn't even believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet he ends up being employed to curse the people of Israel and can't screw himself up to do it. He keeps on trying to curse the people of Israel and then receiving prophetic blessings from God to bless the people of Israel. So he's taken blood money to pronounce curses over a nation that he can't curse. Instead, he keeps blessing them. And the thing he says is, over Judah, there's going to be a star that rises. And when a star rises, the scepter won't depart from that king's hand. Go check it out. You can read it in the Bible. So these magi not only understand the stars, they've also read the stories of the people of Israel and thought, well, something's supposed to happen in 490 years, and there's something to do with the star. Then they see a star around the right time, and so they set off. Let's carry on with the story. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They knew something that the Magi didn't know, a prophecy by Isaiah, so they read it out. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means last among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd his people." So we have, there'll be a star. It'll be 490 years from when Daniel wrote his prophecies when the exiles returned, which is about now. We have another prophecy saying, it'll be in Bethlehem. And these outsiders, these strangers, who are not part of the story, pick up on the hints and travel to the very home of Jesus where the chief priests who are educated in this stuff 
Don't even bother to follow them, the 15 Ks from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see if it's true. Can you cope with that? The people who have been steeped in this stuff, who've been taught this stuff, who can just as easily have quoted the things that the strangers, who are also interested in every other random sort of quasi-spiritual thing, have understood. The people of God missed it. And I would put it to you that it's a lack of hope that blinds us. It's a lack of hope that makes us closed off to the possibility. You'll see later on in the second story I'm going to tell you that it's hope that allows people to recognize what's going on. And it's hard-heartedness that makes us miss it. And these teachers of the law who had every advantage to figure it out, go, 15 Ks, that's a bit far, a bit cold at this time of year. Well, let's see what happens to these magi. I like the fact that it's a star. It makes me think that these guys were traveling by night, creeping for miles and miles at great expense and at great danger by night following the star then having to hold up somewhere during the day. Here's the big thing for me. We look back on the story and we think, oh, the Magi, they must have known because it ended so well. Clearly they were sure. Here's the first thing about hope. It's never really that certain, is it? It's always fragile. It always feels a bit normal. It always feels a little bit harebrained. I remember my first big sort of faith step as a Christian. I was a, uh, working in Peter Maritzburg as a border master at a wonderful school, uh, a primary school up in Hilton, and traveling down to Varsity every day. And I was getting involved in church life down there and getting stuck into all kinds of exciting things that God was doing. And I thought that it was time for me to leave the comfort of the boarding establishment where I was getting the heady sum of 800 bucks a month, as well as food and laundry and a place to sleep for free and children who thought I was a hero. And all I had to do in, in you know, payment for that was the odd sports practice and put them to bed at night and so on. And uh, I felt like I was supposed to move down to Peter Maritzburg and actually got to get involved. I was in a church and life group and we were doing outreach on the campus and I wanted to be involved in all that stuff that was going on and I kept on having to miss things. And I thought maybe God was suggesting I should do that, but I, I'm not a booming, audible voice person at all. So I was like, I think this is a God idea. It's a bit of a crazy idea because I'm not going to have a place to stay or any money, but I wonder if I should quit at the school and see if I can go down and live in Peter Marisburg. And I had watched First Night, the Richard Gere Camelot movie, essential education for everyone. And, um, and there's this scene that had affected me deeply where he does an all-night prayer vigil before he becomes a... Um, a night. And because I'm so humble and don't think of myself in grandiose ways, I decided I should do an all-night prayer vigil like Richard Gere. I didn't have the cool flowing cape with the cross on it or the big sword. But I went to some mate's place in Peter Maritzburg and decided I was going to spend the evening on their, in their lounge on their couch and just try and pray my way through the night going, do I take this crazy risk of resigning from the school with no place to live and no, no income certain? And can I tell you that by the end of that night, where there had been some sleeping on the couch and not a lot of real classic Richard Gere stoicism. I kind of thought I knew. I was pretty sure it was what I was going to do. It had started to feel a bit inevitable that I was just going to have to rip the plaster off and do it. But there was no, this is definitely going to work out. As it played out, I gave my notice in with no idea what I was going to do. And when the headmaster challenged me, I said, well, God said I had to. And that ended that conversation. But I wasn't as sure as I was making it sound. And then a place to live popped up two weeks to go. And then a place to work early hours of the morning at a gym popped up with one week to go. And I had just saved enough money, which I was going to spend on cycling equipment, which was irresponsible anyway, to, to pay the deposit. And it was like this incredible, miraculous thing that ended up happening. But can I tell you that in between making the decision and the miracle actually taking place and the thing turning out to be right, 
It wasn't like they were shining lights. It wasn't certain. There wasn't some huge, big faith muscle just like, you know, flexing inside me. It felt like normal and a little bit fragile. I bet the Magi felt the same way. They're going off some ancient text from a culture they don't even know, some vague allusion to a star, some vague mathematics that add up to 490, some strange light that they think might be what this Balaam guy was talking about, but he was also a bit of a nutter. And they set out for months, traveling at night. Can you imagine around the campfire, all of them going, oh, this is, this is going to be a, a dead, you know, absolute dead search. You know, we, we, there's no doubt this is going to be a 100% hit. Like, of course not. It would have felt awkward and unsure. And faith is like that, friends. Hope is absolutely necessary. You can't live without it. You dare not be like the other people in Bethlehem who miss it. But don't wait until it feels like you are glowing in the dark, absolutely certain, and then you'll know. It's going to feel ordinary and a little bit hesitant. And your first steps in faith will be stumbling. And most of your steps in faith will probably be stumbling and groping. We see in part, says the Apostle Paul. We know in part. But that's how these incredible stories begin, with fumbling, very ordinary steps taken by ordinary people. And they end up in exactly the right place. That's story number one. Story number two about hope. So it's fragile. It deserves to be protected. It's not going to feel glorious to begin with. The next story is about a guy called Simeon. You probably don't know about him, but he is one of my favorite character in this whole story. He's a Jewish guy who lives pretty much all the time in the temple. And Jesus has been born, and eight days later, as is the custom, he has to be taken after circumcision and all that other good stuff, which we won't describe for tender ears here. Um, the, it's hard to sort of focus once you've put that image in your mind. Um, he has to be presented, and there's some sacrifices that have to be made. And so we'll pick up the story in Luke 2. This little country bumpkin couple have taken their kid up to the temple. Nothing extraordinary about this. Nothing particularly noticeable. It's not a great time in Israel's history. You've got this evil king who's not even properly part of the throne. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. Not a lot to be hopeful about. Heavy taxes, load shedding, all sorts of stuff. They go to the temple. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now just picture this scene, right? Country mouse up to town, intimidated by this massive temple that Herod had built to try and show how pious he was when in fact he wasn't at all. Hugely intimidating. You go up the southern, the southern steps, which are enormous. They're still there today, and it's like the steps of Moses Mabita. You get into this incredible temple mount area, and you've got to make your sacrifice of some turtle doves or pigeons. And some certifiable character comes running out and does what all of us know we shouldn't do, which is grab some lady's baby out of her arms and holds him up. Mary, you would imagine, would have been loving him at that moment. And he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That's an important idea. You've got Jewish shepherds there at the birth of Jesus. You've got Gentile kings from over in Persia who are not part of the people of God, who they're off the prophecy given to Balaam, who was not part of the people of God. Jesus is a man for all people. 
And from the very beginning, he was proving I'm not for some holy, special elect, some people with big, flexing faith muscles who glow in the dark who are certain. I'm here for all of you ordinary folk, the people of God and the people who would think that they're never part of the people of God. He's come for all of us, for the people of Israel and for the Gentiles. And so Simeon is going nuts, saying, well, he's seen the Messiah that he's been waiting for. Then there's another character who's also awesome. She, I want you to picture the lady from um, the, the Feed the Birds lady from Mary Poppins, right? Kind of bedraggled, a bit smelly, probably. And uh, her name is Anna. She was a prophet, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She'd never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She spoke about the child to all who had hope to all who were expecting that God could still do something glorious. And those that didn't, the chief priests who couldn't be bothered to go 15 Ks, the innkeeper in Bethlehem who couldn't be bothered to make space, even though there were angels singing and stars moving and all sorts of crazy stuff, the people who were too busy, too bitter, once trusted, twice shy, all of those folks with no hope, with no expectations, missed the whole thing. Missed the whole thing. Anna spoke to those who were expecting God to do something wonderful and confirmed for them, God has done something wonderful. There's a dreadful self-fulfilling prophecy here. I hope you're seeing it. To go back to our friends, the psychologists, those who think they're lucky in every objective objective measure are actually more lucky because they're expecting good stuff to happen. They're looking for opportunities. Those who've decided, I'm just always the one who gets served last at the restaurant, I'm just never the one that gets the lucky break, become, in objective measures, less lucky. Those who have hope, those who believe that good things are possible, that they have the opportunity and the ability to reach those good things, get the good things. Suffer through struggle and opposition and obstacles far better. Stay better connected to people around them because they're nice to be around so they have better support systems. Anchor themselves on the idea that God is actually good so that then when some nutcase feed the bird lady Anna comes up and says, hey, this is the Messiah, the people who have hope notice The people who are expecting God to do something see that God is doing something. And those who go, oh, well, if he was really good, he would come and smack me on the face and let me know. They miss it. They get exactly what they're expecting. I don't know about you, but I have been the hopeless, bitter skeptic many times in my life. Many times I've gone, ah, well, we've tried and it didn't work. Shall we try again? Is this faith thing a bit like touch rugby? didn't really feel hugely special. It didn't, I'm not really sure that it's for me. I think some people may have disproved the Bible once, so let's just go with that as opposed to really checking it ourselves. I read Dan Brown, and it made me think that maybe, whatever, you know, like some easy excuse, oh, well, I'll just rubbish it, as opposed to actually carrying the hope inside you that this story, if it's true, you would be crazy to miss out on. And so all that you can be expected to do, all that can be asked of you, is that you, like the people who Anna spoke to, are looking forward to the possibility of the redemption of all mankind. You need him. You need him for meaning in your life. You need him for morality to actually make sense and for there to be any promise of justice at the end of this. You need him for mercy. You know you do. And if you're prepared to remain hopeful, you'll find him. You won't be one of the people that missed the story.
We're going to have the band come up, and we're going to sing joy to the world. And it is absolute joy to the world. Let's not miss it. Will you just pray with me for a second before we stand? God, you sent your son. You came to us because we matter to you, because we mean something to you. You also came because you are just that good, that glorious. While we were still sinners, with no strength or ability to overcome the problem of our separation from you, you moved towards us. And Jesus, you came in absolute poverty, in absolute humility, destined to die from the moment you were born, ready to take upon yourself the sins of the world. And in that moment, in that glorious moment, where every single angel in heaven broke ranks and came rushing to earth to shout about it, hope broke out. Hope became available, genuine hope. Hope that can make us brave and strong and healthy and connected to one another and patient. I hope that we can be loved. And I pray this evening and tomorrow as we celebrate what you've done, as we celebrate time together, that that hope would dawn inside us and radiate through us and never set. Jesus, you are called the son of righteousness, that you rise in our lives, that you give us light to live by. And that every one of us has been stumbling around and become a little skeptical and run out of hope and are possibly missing the story. That we would see it once again with fresh eyes. That you would open our spiritual eyes to see it. And in Jesus' name, that you would call us to yourself. And to live off your hope. Amen.